Exiting Egypt, or exiting Egypt with the Hebrew people, God called Moses to the top of Mount Sinai to give him the law for his people. This began clear back in Exodus 20, and it began with ten commandments that flowed into an elaboration of those specific commandments with some very specific laws. Then in chapters 25 through 27, God started dictating very specific instructions on the construction of the tabernacle, tabernacle, which is the tent of worship, so to speak, for the nomadic people of Israel who are going to travel around the desert, the wilderness. This is where the presence of God was going to literally dwell with his people as they traveled around. And then in Exodus chapter 28 through 30 were instructions about the priestly garments, the consecration of the priests, how they were to conduct sacrifices. And so this chunk of 25 through 31, we have the the whole law that, that God is giving Moses, 20 to 31, but this chunk of 25 to 31 runs well to the creation narrative in Genesis. If you were to read very carefully, it is as if, as if God is commanding his people to reconstruct the Garden of Eden, that he may again dwell with them in a fixed way on earth. Of course, there are very different rules now because sin has entered into the world and it separates a holy God from fallen men. God can't simply walk in the cool of the day with the Israelites like he did for Adam and Eve before the fall. So thus we have what I preached on last time in Exodus. There's this system for atonement for sin established. And we learned last time that this was a massive foreshadowing of the, uh, the coming effectual atonement of who? Of Christ, his robes for mine, remember? Who is not only the true and better priest, he is the spotless lamb of God for sinners slain, and he is the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle, or rather, he is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's right. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 31. And Bezalel, the builder, and the Sabbath, How does this fit? If you were to stop reading at the end of 25 through 30, there there seems to be, to me, if you were to stop at the end of 30, there's lingering question hanging out there. If I was Moses at the end of all those very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle and how to set the priests aside, how to consecrate them, I might have been tempted to ask God and pause for a second and say something like this. I would say, God, hold on a second. Let me read this back to you and make sure I got it right. You want solid, unbroken pieces of gold extending off of furniture hammered into the shapes of leaves and cherubim. You want fine twined linen. You want gold overlaid acacia wood. You want that tent to be how big? God, you do remember who you are working with here, right? These are the peoples that when you said not to go out and gather manna on the Sabbath, what did they do? They didn't listen to your instructions. Here's the question for you, God. How on earth are we going to accomplish all of this? And the answer is chapter 31. Essentially, the Lord replies with, just as I have done everything else on your behalf, so I will do this in your midst as well. But it's not just speak it and it's so this time. It's a little different. Remember that this whole project of redeeming for himself a people set apart from other peoples on the earth by no merit of their own, 
This whole project is to reflect the glory of God and make Him known in all the earth. How they behave towards each other, how they worship and behave towards God, all of it is to proclaim that there is one Creator God who rules over all the nations, and it's no different here at the very last chapter of this section. By helping His people to be like Him, He is going to reestablish this dwelling place of God with men, this tabernacle. And the way he's going to make them like him in this way, in this law, in this moment, is he's going to make them like him through their work and their rest. In their work and in their rest. Remember with me, like Moses or God proclaimed to Moses in verse 17, what is, work, what is the work and rest rhythm of God in creation? Six days of work. Say it with me, six days of work and one day of rest. And what is the foundational purpose of the Mosaic Law? It is being given to the people that they might better know God, what He is like, what He values, and in turn can know how to be like Him, how to be holy. God told His people, be holy as I am holy. And then he signs off on the body of work from Exodus 20 through 31 and verse 18, but he hasn't yet. So in context, why not snap his fingers and create for himself a dwelling? Because even in the building of this thing, even in their work and in their rest, God wants his people to be made in his likeness that they might know him and rightly reflect him. Even in their work and their rest, he wants to get glory. He wants to proclaim his name. So the title of this sermon is this, As He Is, So Shall They Be. As He Is, So Shall They Be in their work. As He Is, So Shall They Be in their rest. And as He Is, So Shall They Be by His decree. By His decree. So work. Let's start there. First, I would say that there is a baseline definition of work that finds its inspiration in God itself. Work defined can be, would be the engagement or effort mentally or physically to achieve a purpose, using ourselves to create and move and alter. Who did this first? Who worked first? God did. God worked in six days. Everything was created. So even before God is commissioning this work in Exodus 31, obviously the people of God know what work is based upon the fact that they have thousands of years worth of being made in the image of God designed to work, to create, and to steward in this world. Work is not a result of the fall. I know it feels like it sometimes. God worked and then made Adam in his image and put him to work in the garden to, and charged him to steward and manage and use his facilities, his brain and his mind and his body. But this is what happened. Sin frustrated the work, but it did not create work. When I sit down at a men's breakfast and start listening to brothers tell me about their work, it's amazing to me. I love it. Some of you guys, if I said, hey, why don't you come up and talk about such and such in front of the church? 
I get one of those. Mm-mm. But I say, tell me what you did this week, and their eyes light up. And you start using letters and numbers and words, and I have no idea what you're talking about. None whatsoever. Yeah, we put up a UT, UTV on the, on the QV and converted a 220 through a 400. Boss told me I had to come back in after 712s, and I told him, no can do, big dog. I'm on PTO to the CCH. We got SD23 coming up, and I'm ready to get back on my 980. And I just... <laughs> what you have achieved, what we have achieved through our work is amazing. I turned the key on my car this morning, and it started, and it brought me here in 17 minutes. A trip that it would have taken a full day 100 years ago. We did that. Work did that. I flicked on the light switch in my office, and in the bleak of an eye, even though the sun wasn't up yet, there were no candles in the room, I could see everything in my office this morning. It was 65 degrees in there in January, or excuse me, in February, in Indiana. I pushed a button because I was a little sleepy, and in less than five minutes I was sipping hot, fresh, organic coffee from some tropical place 3,000 miles away that I can't even pronounce. You did this. You did it. We did it. Look at what we have done just based on the fact that there is a drive inside us to work, to create, to think, to take raw materials and turn them into useful things. This is work. But God is going to do something special with work with the Israelites here. He's going to sanctify it. He's going to give it purpose. The Lord specifically calls out two workers, Bezalel and Aholiab. Listen to what their very names mean. Bezalel, his name means under the shadow of God or protection of God, much like a tent in the middle of the desert. Aholiab means the Father is my tent. So under the protection of a tent and the Father is my tent, these two men. And at this moment, God is doing something with the natural created proclivity of people to work. He is sanctifying it and using it for the purpose of building the dwelling place of God with men. These men whose very names foreshadowed their life's purpose. God does something for them to equip them for this purpose. What does he do? What does the text tell us that God does for them? Verse 3, and I have filled them with the what? Spirit of God. Fills them with his spirit. And with our New Testament mentality, we might say, okay, well, all believers in the house today have the spirit dwelling in them, but this is before that. In the Old Testament, God indwells with the spirit, not as a carte blanche promise to believers, but rather to accomplish specific purposes. So God fills them with his spirit, and they are not only made able to work and create things, but to create this grand these grand designs. I would imagine these men probably aren't coming in cold with no experience. It stands the reason they were probably already craftsmen used, uh, used to doing work in a common Genesis type of way. But now, filled with the Spirit, the Lord gives them, what? Four things. Ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship. And not just these two men, 
They were probably representative heads. They were probably the bosses or the foremen of the project. But God is going to give all able men, it says in the text, all able men, abilities, intelligence, knowledge, and craftsmanship for the Israelites. Boy, wouldn't that be nice on a Monday morning? A little extra dose, right? But God was sanctifying their work supernaturally taking it to another level for a special and specific purpose, the building up of his dwelling place on earth. The establishment of his people to reflect his glory through all the earth. There is work, and the Lord is now telling them there is an Israelite way to go about working that is different and sanctified from general revelation, creation-based working. Let's put a pin there. That's the sanctified six days for the Israelites. Let's look at the other side of the coin. Work and what was the other one? Rest. Rest. Similarly, God wasn't inventing rest in Exodus chapter 31 or even in Exodus chapter 20. Rest is rooted in Him. He was the first one that demonstrated rest when after He created the universe, what did He do? He rested. Again, verse 17, that's where the root of this passage is coming from. This whole system of work and rest has its genesis in God. Now, did God need to rest? Let's all say it together. No. Does God get tired? No. Of course He does not. He does not grow weary or faint. On the first Sabbath, that seventh day of the creation narrative, who was still holding the heavens in their place? God was whose eye was still on the brand new little flying animal that Adam had not yet named a sparrow. God's eye was. He was very much still at work every moment of every day from eternity past to eternity future. Everything has been and will be in his hand. He is simultaneously working and also perfectly at rest. We aren't capable of this. Especially in our sin, we are not capable of this. Sabbath is God's gift to the man and woman he had prepared to be his servants and workers on earth. It's his gift to them. Rest is a gift to us. God didn't need it, but he knew and created us that we would. It's his gift to us. And like a good father demonstrates for his children, so God himself was demonstrating a pattern for those beings who are created in his image. The Hebrew people understood their need for rest the same way they understood their need for work. Other cultures did too. You don't have to go very far in studying ancient cultures before you realize the rhythms of work and rest are built into their patterns. Even understanding and practicing the concept of a seven-day week completely void of this revelation of God to the Israelites. Where did that come from? Where did seven-day work weeks come from? Practiced by Pagans in ancient cultures. Who taught them that? The very names of our days right now have their origins in pagan Norse gods who adopted and renamed pagan Roman gods. As a sign of creation, this Sabbath that they were to remember testifies that it is God and not man that the world depends on for its continued existence. 
But God is here in the law, once again, sanctifying rest and institutionalizing it within the rhythms of the Israelites the same way that he did with work. Why? Look at verse 16. Why? What's the answer to the question? Why is he doing that here? Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations. Here it is. As a covenant forever. So he, this concept of rest that, they, that everybody in the world already pretty well understood, that they can't work 24-7, they have to slow down and rest at some point. God is taking this design that everybody is intuitively already understanding, and for the Israelites, he's sanctifying it, and he's saying now it's a sign of the covenant with God. The covenant with his people that said that they would be numerous as the stars in the heavens and come into a land flowing with milk and honey, and that they would be as a city set on a hill proclaiming the glory of God to the world. And then there's another layer that gets added later on in Deuteronomy. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, it says this. this is the Deuteronomy's second telling of the law. This is what Moses writes about the Hebrew Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy, as the Lord your God commands you. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And here's, here's, the, here's the extra layer. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you up from out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so this Exodus Sabbath is different from creation Sabbath. This sanctified Sabbath being established here for the people of God goes beyond just saying that the world depends on God to continue on. This Sabbath now declares that salvation depends upon the power of God and not on human works. When they keep this Sabbath, when the Israelites keep this Sabbath, they are declaring and remembering that all sustaining and saving and redeeming comes from who? God. Not only does God hold all things in His hand, but they are what they are. The Israelites are who they are only because God has saved them and redeemed them to be His people. Now, do you see why this is deadly serious business to God? Do you see that Sabbath-breaking, why it might have come with the death penalty? At first, that seems a little bit harsh. But when you've done the work that we have done here this morning, you understand what a person, an Israelite, who breaks the Old Testament Sabbath is saying to God. They are denying that God is the creator and sustainer, and they are rejecting that salvation comes from God alone. And just the same as the priest who would have dropped dead if they flippantly came into the Holy of Holies, so these wicked people who deny the Lord as Creator and Savior, they deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. They deserve death. This is the God of the Bible. He is jealous for His own glory. He is righteous in all His perfections. Who can stand before Him? And if we were Jewish, first of all, it would be Saturday, if we were Jewish, I would now close the Torah and say, thus saith the Lord. 
You can pick up your list of Sabbath-keeping rules on the way out so that you won't become a wicked, dirty Sabbath-breaker who deserves death. Shabbat Shalom. Sabbath peace to you. Sabbath rest to you. But really, Rabbi Kurt would be saying peace, peace, where there is no peace. Rest, rest, where there is no rest. Because you know, and I know, that the ink can't even dry on the tablets where God gives specific instructions for Israelite conduct and worship. How it is that they're supposed to be holy as He is holy. How it is that they are to reflect the lordship and salvation of God in all the earth. The ink can't even dry on the law before Moses goes down from Mount Sinai and they aren't just breaking the Sabbath, they have made for themselves a false god, a golden calf. This is the next chapter, 32. They have broken all the laws before Moses can even tell them what the laws are. So obviously, this sanctifying of their work and their rest, in in Exodus 31, this mosaic setting aside of work and rest, it doesn't work to do the thing that He intended for it to do. It's supposed to make them holy as He is holy. It doesn't. It obviously isn't working. If you read the Old Testament, you know. Just like the blood of bulls and goats. It's not effectual. So that must mean that this isn't it. This must be a shadow. Right? If it didn't, God doesn't do things that don't work. So if it doesn't work... It must be a shadow. It must be pointing to something that does. So what are we, the New Testament church, to take from this? Should we expect from this text, when I say this, Exodus 30, so what good is it to us then, if it was just for them? Should we expect everyone who shows up for work day to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a special way and literally build the house of God? Man, I'd love that. Sign me up for a sport coat of fine twine linen and a pulpit overlaid with gold, right? Should we keep the Sabbath as it is presented in Exodus 31? I would return that question with a question. Should we slaughter bulls and goats for the atonement of sin? No. Answer to all those questions is no, we shouldn't. Why? Because we don't put our hope in the decree of God written on stone tablets of Mount Sinai. But our hope does come from a mountain. It does come from a mountain. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. This is a whole other sermon that I've already titled A Tale of Two Mountains, but I won't preach that sermon today. the transfiguration Jesus after six days six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves 
And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. A declaration comes from heaven. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him, but Jesus only. I'll save all the little nuances of Mark 9 for another Lord's Day, perhaps. But I just wanted to point out two things, and they're in verses 7 and 8. Once again, God is giving an authoritative decree on a mountain about his word. But this time, he's not writing it in cold, hard, dead stone. It's in his own flesh and blood. God makes his declaration for how his people will be holy as he is holy on Mount Sinai. And then all that remains as Moses goes down the mountain is an Israel that can not be holy as he is holy. Then, here, God makes a declaration for how His people will be holy as He is holy on the mountain of transfiguration. And then, all that remains is the Israel that can be holy as He is holy. You can take that and apply it to all 11 chapters that we just preached through from Exodus chapter 20 to Exodus 31 where the people of God in the Old Testament were called to work and work and work so that they could earn the right to have a shadow of Sabbath, to earn the right to have a shadow of rest. We now praise God through the true and better Adam, the true and better Moses, the true and better Elijah, have no more work to do. For Christ came off that mountain and set his face like flint towards finishing the work set before him. And as he drew his last breath on the cross, he declared what? It is finished. The work of the law to make a holy people fitting of a holy God is done. John chapter 17 verses 4 and 5. The Son says to the Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the what? The what? The work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so, in light of this, hear these words fresh from Christ. Ready? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath. I'll give you Sabbath. We have this much in common with the Jews. The concept of creation Sabbath. God worked six days and rested one. He did this to demonstrate for us our need to rest and recognize Him as the sustainer over all the universe. But just as God sanctified work and rest for the Jews, it was just a foreshadow, just to foreshadow the ultimate sanctification of work and rest that took place in Jesus, in Christ. So what does this mean for us? 
What does it mean for us? The Jews worked so they might try to find this kind of rest. Their Sabbath was the last day of the week. We already have rest in Christ. And without condemnation, we are now free to joyfully work. So the Jews worked to try to rest. We already have rest, so we are free to work. Work to what end? Well, the same end of Aholiab and Bezalel. To build the dwelling place of God with men, that his people might be made more like him, and that his name might be glorified in all the earth. Ephesians chapter 2. This is a long passage, but the whole thing is good, so hang on with me. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are here his what? Workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, here it is, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now, but now, but now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, our shalom, our rest who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh dividing the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace, rest, to you who were far off, and rest and peace to those who were near. And through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father, so that you no longer are strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy what? Tabernacle! grows into a holy dwelling place of God with men in the Lord. And in Him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus our Lord. The condemning death penalty that loomed over Sabbath breaking has been satisfied in Christ. We are not bound by the law, but are now free to understand it and obey the Lord without fear of judgment to work out our salvation while being filled and kept by His Holy Spirit while we rest in Him. To work with our hands and our brains and with all the energy that Christ gives, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to create and pray and teach Sunday school 
and preach and steward and disciple and give tithes and work and fix HVAC units and make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for three-year-olds and work to build up this temple, this tabernacle of God with your income and capacity and whatever abilities God has given you until thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Put that in your Monday morning coffee and drink it. When you go to work, whatever your work is, it is no longer for the building of your own kingdom. Listen to me, O Bezalel the builder. Listen to me, O Holyab, gifted of Holy Gab. God has put His Spirit in you. Your work is sanctified. Your work, all of it, has been bought with a price. You no longer work for you. You work unto the Lord that is His people, the church, the bride of Christ, that it would be built up and His name would be glorified in all the earth. But no part of that, no part of your work affects your standing with God. Praise, praise be the Lord that you don't have to work for Sabbath. You have Sabbath in Jesus and you are free, uncondemned to work. Work. The only thing left that you must do is not really a do at all. It's to believe and accept and rest in what He has accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection. He is our Sabbath rest. And if that doesn't convince you to set aside the Lord's Day as sacred in your own home, to orient your life and your schedule, to prioritize one day a week to just rest and be refreshed in His goodness, if this doesn't convince you, nothing else I can say will convince you. I cannot convince you. Let me give you a word of warning to you already convinced Lord's Day Sabbatarians. The Jews had set up rules on top of rules on top of rules in an attempt to self-justify. And Jesus constantly went back and forth with them in the New Testament because they were missing it. The point of the Sabbath was never self-justification. It was never self-righteousness. It was to remind them of the only one who could ever save them. It was to remind them of just how lost they were without God. It was to drive them to hope in a God who saves and His promised Messiah. They were obsessed with staying in the darkness of the shadow when the light of life was standing right in front of them. Keeping the Lord's Day as sacred has nothing to do with following rules or giving one a self-righteous pedestal to stand on. And if you've used it that way, repent and rest. Rest in Him, in His work, not yours. This six days of work, one day of rest, it's about two things for the Christian. Number one, it's about doing what's good for you. Working like God worked, resting like God rested. And it's about remembering and celebrating that we rest in Christ. What can we do? What can we do? Give me rules. Give me guidelines. 
I'll give you nothing but what Christ gives you. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's probably a good thing I'm not in charge of these things because I might make a motion at the members meeting to get a big giant sign that hangs over the entryway that just says that. just says rest. The Lord's Day is a day dedicated to celebrating and resting in Jesus for all the reasons that I've outlined today. It's the day that the church gathers. The Jews rested on the last day. They worked to try to gain rest. We rest first day of the week and we're free to work. Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. A lot of things happened on a Sunday. If you're new to this, this thinking about six and one, gathering out with the saints is a really good start. And we gather out on Sunday, Sunday mornings. So good job. When we work, it's as to the Lord. When we rest, it's as to the Lord. In Him we live and we move. And we have our being and praise God both now and in eternity. In him we can rest. And I want to say this. If Christ is not your Lord, I invite you to him today. I know you have found no rest in this world. You cannot, you cannot deceive me. I remember. There's no rest. Repent of your sin and follow him as Lord, and find your rest and your purpose in living in Him. Let's pray. Father, send your Spirit to fill us. Remind us that it dwells in us testify to us through it that we can find our rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, we lift up those before you who aren't physically well. I think of Harish. I praise God for so far so good. I lift up his therapy that starts this week to you. I pray for Jennifer DeVito for her surgery this week. Pray for David Bestie, who's in Deaconess Hospital with blood pressure-related issues. I lift up Michelle Gibson, who is at home recovering after surgery this past week. Oh, Lord, I am so thankful to see pictures of opened eyes and no breathing assistance for little baby Israel that many of us know. She was doing very much better after bad sickness and she get to come home soon. I lift up before you Brandon Lindsay, pastor of the Bridge Church in Evansville. He's asked us for prayer for his chronic sickness and for his church's wellness. I know. I know he loves those people. I know you love those people. And I lift up Brandon before you. I lift up to you Brother Corey Rash. 
and Brother Sean Goodwin and their families for Judy. Losing a father is no small matter, and both of these families did so in the last couple weeks. Help them, Lord, to continue to grieve, all the while looking to you, their eternal Father, for peace and for comfort and rest. Lord, I pray for the melancholy and downtrodden in spirit. Thank you for the coming spring and sunshine. May it warm our bodies and at the same time our minds and our souls. I pray for the mission in Turkey and Syria region and the earthquake aftermath. Lord, we pray for physical aid and gospel sharing. Pray for Mount Vernon Baptist Church, Lord, our church, that we would have corporate unity, that we would have corporate unity not built on hollow foundations of personalities, Lord, but that it would be upon the rock-solid foundation of your word and the rock-solid assurance of rest in the gospel. Help us to pray together well. Help us to support like-minded church planning and missions together well. And overall, Lord, just help us to be about the work of building your kingdom all the while that we rest in you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.